Providence Church Podcast. This is the first episode of our new Galatians Summer Series. In this episode, Pastor Chuck gets us underway by examining the very roots of our gospel. For more Providence Church, visit us online at provchurch.net. That's provchurch.net. Let's get into it. So we're starting a new series, Galatians, and it's, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Um, it's hard to have a favorite book, right? But I love Romans and I love Galatians because they're the closest thing to a systematic theology that we have. Um, he talks in both of these books about justification through faith alone and then sanctification. What does that look like? And these are things that we, we grapple with Uh, quite often. And the thing about the book of Galatians or the epistle, a letter uh, uh, to the Galatians, is that this centers, uh, Paul has an argumentative tone within this. He's upset. He's dealing with something specific. Um, And so um, the early church author, John Chrysostom, he writes, uh, this letter breathes an, an indignant spirit. So Paul, and you'll see throughout the weeks to come, some pretty funny uh, uh, interaction that Paul has, funny in the time as we look back on it, but probably not so funny when, when he was engaged in it. Um, but we, this, this book of Galatians, is, it's, it's, it's an argument. And uh, the theologians call it a polemic. It's an argument against something. And so... Um, what he's arguing about is um, another gospel, and we'll see that. Uh, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then there's this other gospel that's getting introduced, and it makes Paul's hair catch on fire, and he deals with this thing head on. Uh, Dr. Douglas Moo uh, writes, The issue sparking Paul's writing of the letter to Galatian uh, Galatia uh, is the gent- in the Gentile Christians is clear. At stake is nothing less than the gospel. So this is what Paul is defending. So let me give you a little background about the book before we get into our, uh, our study this morning. Um, there is really no consensus as to who the Galatians were. So we have what they call the province of Galatia, right? That's northern Asia Minor. And then you have uh, the region of Galatia, which includes the southern region, and um, if it's the latter, which I was talking to Dwight, my training says it was, and his too, so we're in harmony there, uh, but it wouldn't matter one way or the other in a sense, other than the fact uh, it's more than likely that this may have been his very first epistle, the first letter that Paul wrote um, right after his first uh, missionary first of three missionary uh, journeys. He's probably about 45 years old when he wrote this letter. He'd been a Christian for at least 17 years. Uh, And so this church isn't 144 years old. This church is a little under 20 years old. So Paul is not a novice. Uh, He was trained, his Old Testament, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, trained under Gamaliel. Uh, He's another character mentioned in the the New Testament, Uh, a renowned uh, teacher, uh, rabbi. So he knows his Old Testament, he knows his Bible, and he was trained as an apostle by Jesus Christ himself. That's why we call him an apostle. That's why he calls himself an apostle. An apostle in the New Testament was someone that was actually with Jesus. 
So when we have these modern-day apostles, that's not a scriptural moniker for what apostleship really is. So the apostles, when you read that in the Bible, it's people that were with Jesus. So the point, what is the occasion? As I mentioned already, it's this false gospel came in and Paul is going to Galatia to straighten out the mess. So let's start in Galatia, Galatians, the first uh, chapter. And we're going to read the first eight verses. That's going to be our text for this morning. Galatians 1, beginning in the first verse, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the church of, churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. I am astonished that you so quickly are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. For I am now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the Galatians... They were being led astray. And of course, the Galatians are people just like we are. And they have to deal with, in a sense, the very same thing that we're dealing with. We are confronted with another gospel quite often. And so we have this amazing text. And this is what the whole of Galatia, Galatians is about. This is Paul establishing a systematic theology what is justification? What is sanctification? He goes through. And how does this impact our lives? So God, God's plan, right, and, and, and this is key, his plan for our lives centers around the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the key to life here on earth and all through eternity. But it begins right here. This is the key. You want a better life? You want to live for all eternity? We come in contact through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We come in contact with the forgiveness, and we're going to unpack that a little bit. So God has this particular plan for our lives, and God's plan starts with justification. What is justification? It's being made right in the eyes of God, justified. Do you ever hear someone try to justify themselves all the time? They come up with all these excuses of why they did this or why they didn't do that, and it's, they're justifying it. No, that doesn't cut it. 
We can't, we're not going to get to heaven. I would have done better if you gave me better parents. I would have done better if, or if, or if. There's no, that, that's a justification. It doesn't pan. Jesus Christ actually becomes our propitiation. That means the offering, that thing that appeases God. He actually becomes it. He doesn't propitiate for us. He actually becomes that sacrifice that makes God not mad at us. That's it. Great news. So if the enemy can derail us at the very beginning of God's work in our lives, then he can indeed rob us of life. And that's what God wants. This gospel is the vehicle for life. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it to the full. He wants us to live a full life. This isn't some restrictive thing. It starts out that way. And Jesus is forthright about it, right? The way to death, the way to destruction is wide and it's broad and it's easy. Everyone's going down it. That's why it's so easy. Hey, everyone's doing it. The narrow way, it's tight. It's confined, narrow. I even like the word. It's hard, he says, but then it opens up into a broad thing. Pastor Dwight talked about that last week. So what does it mean? We're made right in the eyes of God by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, by his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Jesus died and was raised to cover or to justify the debt of my sin. Justification is 100% the work of God. That has to land. This is the key component to what Paul's going to be battling all through this letter. Justification is 100% a work of God. There isn't anyone going to get to heaven and say, hey, yeah, why I should be here? Because I did a lot of good things. It's not going to cut it. I love Alistair Begg. He, in a recent sermon, he talked about the, the thief on the cross, right? He didn't do anything. He's sitting there hanging. He's dying. And he looks over to Jesus. Remember me when you get to paradise. He says, I'm going to tell you right now, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so he imagines the thief getting to heaven. He's there. He's all looking around. And they're like, dude, why should we let you in? I don't know. But the guy on the middle cross said I could be here. I love that. I don't know. The guy on the middle cross said, I could. that's justification. He didn't do anything. And he was justified. That's us. We've been justified. You, your sins. Yeah, the big ones, the little ones, all of them. Me. Right now. We're not being justified. We are justified. We have to start at that place. And this is what Paul's going to seek to establish all through this letter. And it's a hard thing as a pastor. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is it's really hard to get people to believe that they're sinners. Oh, no, no, we do it intellectually. But no, you are guilty. Badly. Without hope. Without God, Paul says in another letter. We're studying, the men are studying um, uh, John, First John in, in our Bible study. And John says, hey, look, if you say that you don't have sin, you're a liar. It's that, it's that plain. The Bible teaches us. The world tells the other thing. The Bible teaches us, every one of us. And so we're guilty, and we feel it. 
And Paul wants us to get help with that. And if we're told we can do something ourselves about it, then that becomes a problem. And that's what Paul is worried about. Most Christians would agree that justification is 100% God's work most. Whether you're Arminian, which means you can lose your salvation, or whether you're a Calvinist, which means you can't, both agree that it's 100% God's justifying work. And then sometimes a but comes in. And what is that? When we're justified, we pretty much all agree on the fact that that is the moment that we are saved. Some people think it's in a moment. Some people think it's a process, whatever. There comes a point where we are justified. We recognize it. Where our faith is in Jesus Christ. We aren't trying to earn our way. We understand but this is the problem. In other words, what we are is we're saying we're partakers, as Peter says, of divine nature. We have this divine nature. What does that mean? The Holy Ghost is in us now. When we received Christ, we received the Holy Spirit. So we have within us a divine nature. Everyone who has accepted Christ has the Holy Ghost within him. And because of this truth, we intuitively, we do know we're taught, in particular, the, 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 the reformers put it this way. And when I say reformers, I'm not talking about reformed religion. I'm talking about those who broke away from the Catholic, all right? So what, what, what the reformers said is that the faith that is alone is never alone. It's always accompanied by works. We have the Holy Ghost in us, so it should produce works, Right? So we're saved. We know it. I'm justified. I'm done. But it's going to do work. But, so if our lives go on and on and on, never changing one whit, we're right to wonder if we've come in contact with the living God. That's a great question. Because Paul even tells us, he gives us this list in Corinthians. He says, it's this incriminating list of all these sins. And he looked and he says to him, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You get that verse up there? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 6.11. And so we feel it. But this is Paul's, when, when, when we have come in contact, we expect that we would not sin like we used to. You were washed. Amazing thing. But my question is, what happens when our experience doesn't measure up to that? Has that ever happened? It's happened to me. What happens? I'm following Jesus Christ. I've given, I've prayed over that thing. I've sought God. And it doesn't seem to budge at all. I feel exactly the same as I've always been. What are we doing? What happens when our experience doesn't match what the Bible teaches us should happen? I wrote down here, if we don't wrongly assume that we not, must not really be saved, 
then we either look in one of two places, either to the flesh or to the spirit to defeat our sins. So the first thing we have to avoid is, well, I guess I'm not saved. I don't believe that. Sometimes these battles that we have are protracted, people. Sometimes they take years to overcome. And we keep at it. What's interesting, and we call this the sanctification process, right? So we talked about justification. Now we have the sanctification process. We got a terrific um, illustration of that in the Bible. The children of Israel, they come out of Egypt, they go through the desert, they cross the Jordan, and they enter the Holy Land, the promised land. They're there. They made it. And yet there's a bunch of enemies there. And why doesn't God just wipe them out? No, he says, you know what? I want you to wipe them out. I want you to battle them. And so the children of Israel had to defeat the enemies. And we get called into the promised land. We are in, people. And then he says to us, now you got to fight. And it's through his power, but he wants us to battle these things. But that battling and winning has nothing to do with our salvation. That's established through the justifying work of Jesus Christ. And when we function on that foundation, our battling takes on an altogether different thing. Uh, the Bible tells us that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost, because we love the bridegroom, we want to please him. When we see sin, these things in our lives that we, um, we're just distressed about, uh, Larry Crabb in his book uh, Inside Out, he writes that think of sin as, a, as a, um, uh, an iceberg. We see the tip of it. What's it, 10% of it sticking out of the water? And there's 90% of it in the water? And our initial instinct is to start applying more effort. Just try harder. And so start hitting that tip of the iceberg, and it's doing nothing. God, in his holy, through his Holy Spirit, will go right to the root of that problem. That's what he does. God is looking to make us something. Sons and daughters of God. He's not looking for behavior modification. So it's either... God is responsible or we are responsible. And as each of us engage this sanctification process, we will be making real choices. We will be exerting real effort. As the Reformers say, that, that God's will doesn't injure our will. Pharaoh has no complaint against God. It says that he hardened his heart. Pharaoh wasn't upset about that. He was in harmony with it. When we sin, we're in harmony with it. So we have real choices. We need to make real effort. But above all, we have to recognize that God is the responsible agent. That's the key. This isn't semantics. God is the one. He is the, 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 the potter. We're the clay. He's, he's making us his work of art. He's the one taking initiative. You read the first three chapters of Ephesians. All that God is doing, right?
When we see God as the responsible agent, we see him as the father. And we are the children. When God's spirit convicts us so that we are brought to the realization that we are sinners in need of a savior, God's spirit works to displace our fallen nature, our Adamic nature. One of my favorite um, gospel accounts is found in Ezekiel, and I'm just going to read it to you. That's right, the Old Testament, the gospel according to Ezekiel. This is what we're talking about here. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see all of those pronouns? I will do this. I will do that. I am going to do this. This is what God is doing. When we come in contact with the saving power of Jesus Christ, he does something. He's going to see this through. In this second approach, it's really close to the first one. And this is the problem with it. Pastor Dustin gave me a a quote the other day that was phenomenal. It says, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. That's a key. And so we've got this other approach where we're going to say, and we all say it, God is the one who saves us. Yes, I get it. Now we have to stay in. So God is going to give you the power to do the right things, but you can choose to do the wrong things, and if you don't keep your nose clean, you're out. And that is uh, a theology that's been developed. E.P. Sanders, way back earlier, and now new uh, N.T. Wright, if you, if you follow this stuff, it's called the New Perspective of Paul. And what it amounts to is the children of Israel understood the uh, idea of election. They were chosen by God. They knew it. I didn't choose you because you were a greater number. I didn't choose you because of anything other than the fact I chose you. Election. Didn't do anything to earn it. But then they kept the law in order to stay in. They were, if they didn't obey the law, then, then they wouldn't be part of the children of Israel. So that was the motivation. And so that's what, we're, that's what we print the gospel sometimes. Hey, it's free. It's all God. It's all God. Yeah, yeah, but if you don't keep your nose clean, you know, so we take with our left hand what we give with our right. And then this process of sanctification, it's hard to make sense of it. God is letting you fight battles. He's letting me fight battles. Don't be distressed by it. And this is what Paul is going to establish all the way through this book. He's going to encourage, what is, the, what is the law? It lets us know when we're off. He calls it a tutor somewhere else. It tells us, dude, you are not aligned with God. And it, and it should jar us through the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that this, I find it interesting that this, this approach, the second approach, this, this you need to keep your nose clean, it always focuses on outward stuff. 
not smoking, not drinking, not swearing, not going to movies, a certain dress code, all these things. And I'm not saying God doesn't have an opinion about those things, but those become the major things. And I find that peculiar, like stuff like yelling at your wife or disrespecting your wife or your children or your wife to your husband or these real serious things that create tremendous amount of hurt. Those don't seem to be that big of a deal. Those heart issues that impact your everyday life way more than a cigarette would. I wrote down here, legalism actually keeps people from experience the fullness that God has for them. It actually bars them. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you put on these big burdens on these people and you don't lift a finger. You have all these rules and all it does is you yourself don't enter the kingdom of heaven and you keep others from keep entering the kingdom of heaven. You can't get in through keeping rules, people. You can't get in. There's no way. It actually bars. It's fool's gold. You get a few successes. I'm getting it. I'm doing it. And you're shiny and you look great, but it's fool's gold. It starts to get a little weather on it and it fades and it has no properties of gold. It doesn't hold up. It doesn't conduct electricity, energy. It's the thing about gold. It's a tremendous conductor. We're supposed to be tried and come forth as gold and we're conducting. We're, God's energy goes through us to the rest of the world. It can't go through fool's gold. You look good yourself, and you love the chief places, and, and look at me, and it doesn't do anything but keep people out. So that's the introduction. So we're going to get into the sermon this morning now. I'm not going to keep you longer, don't worry. In a few weeks, we're going to take a closer look at the idea uh, of this, what it takes to stay in. Paul really gets into that in the uh, fourth chapter, and I'll be preaching on that on the 23rd. So I was, I was writing these sermons in conjunction with one another. Um, but throughout this epistle, Paul teaches us from start to finish, this is my first point, The gospel is the free gift of God. Romans 26, 23 writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then in Romans, Paul, I'm not going to read it, he goes on about, talks about the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, uh, not as a gift, but as a due. So if you've worked for your salvation, there's no gift in that. So he goes out of his way to make the point, if it's about your works, then it's just what you deserve. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get what I deserve. 
So just as much as Paul desires for his flock to be assured of their salvation, he wants them to understand that this is also, this gospel includes a lifestyle. It includes living now, not just in the future. This isn't just uh, letting us off the hook. He didn't die on the cross to let us off the hook. He died on the cross to make us sons and daughters of God. I wrote down here, in other words, Paul is emphasizing an ongoing lifestyle of the grace of God. Look at verse 4. Who gave himself, talking about Jesus, for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So here we have three points, and we're going to just briefly touch on all three of these points. He gave himself for our sins. Paul is emphatic about that. Jesus came for our sins. He came to deliver us from this present evil age. And he wants us to align with the will of God. This is our privilege. This is our opportunity to align with the will of God. One of the most difficult things uh, as a pastor that I've seen over the years is people really believing that they're sinners. It's a hard thing to do. We're, we're, it's built right in us to think that we're good and we're really not that bad. And because none of us are jerks, most of us anyway. We don't do things to hurt people on purpose for the most part. So it's hard to imagine the fact that we have a, 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 a kernel, something that is, is, is damaged that affects every part of our being. That's a really difficult thing. And it's called Sin. It manifests itself in sinful things. And you have those things in your life that you know that I'm talking about. And if you don't think you do, the Bible says that that's a liar, right? He that saith he has no sin is a liar, right? And if you can actually hear that you are a, you're a sinner, that's the Holy Ghost. The Bible says the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Not Chuck Knowles or Dwight Lefevre or Dustin Metzler or whoever. God himself, the Holy Ghost, is the one who lets you know that you're a sinner. You can't, you can't figure this out on your own. That's the fall. That's the nature of the fall. And Paul's saying right off the bat that Jesus came to die for your sins. And all those people that don't think they have any sin, they're like, what does that even mean? It no, means nothing to me. You know, the Bible talks about sin, like sinner, sinners. I, I, I stopped counting at 237 times. It, the New Testament, it's full of it. It's a big part of it. And every one of us is on the same level. Yeah, there's some better, doing better than others, right? You've been at it long. But there isn't a one of us that can go and say, hey, I'm there. God, let me in. But this, this um, you know, I was talking to somebody recently, and they were telling me that they're, they're uh, and this is why it's hard, their they're, um, person they know is like a really good person, the kindest person they know, does really good things for people, but is an atheist, doesn't believe in God. Right? And I'm like, that's awesome. I said, I'm going to be willing to bet 
that that person has someone who was a Christian really close to them. Well, yeah, her mother was a born-again believer. (laughs) She's living off the spiritual equity of her mother. And we're living off the spiritual equity of those who came on before us. I'd say, go look at that wall out there. 144 years of spiritual equity. We're not just looking at the past and saying, oh, how great we are. We're looking to now look forward. It's our turn to have something for our children. Something for our grandchildren. It's our turn to start fighting those battles. And it begins with you and your personal life. The sinful things in it. Are you doing business with God? Are you fighting those things? I know I have to. I talked to Pastor Dwight. As godly as he is, he's got to fight those. We have them. Every one of us. And the really awesome news is it isn't just for heaven. It's for now. He says in in, in verse 4 again, he says, so that... um, He will um, deliver us from this present age. Do you think we need to be delivered from a present age if there ever was an age? What Paul means by present age is worldliness. It's putting man first. It's this thing that we call existentialism. Seems like a big word. It's not that complicated. If I can't see it, touch it, experience it. If it can't, if it doesn't make sense into my brain, then it's not true. We limit. So you hear, and it's the quintessential existential uh, uh, saying, it would be something like, my truth. That's nonsense. My truth. There is truth in nothing else. So we have this idea, and once something other than God, the truth, Jesus is, I am the way, the truth, and the life, once that truth isn't the anchor, then all bets are off, and we spiral out, and we have a present age. God wants to restore. He wants us to revel in the joys of sexuality. He created it. You know, we say, no, 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 and I'm tired of it. It's not what we're doing. We're saying, yes, yes, but God's way. And it's amazing. This whole other thing is a lie meant to destroy it. That's the no. We want to raise our families according to the Bible. How God save us from this world. Well, yeah, why don't you do something about it? Why don't I do something about it? What's coming through on our TV sets? What are our kids seeing? What are we we demonstrating to our children? This is real. This is what we're delivered from and from. Trust me, this is the glorious life that God wants for each of us. We want our lives, our homes our being to be an oasis, a cold glass of water to a world that is thirsty. And that's a double entendre nowadays. Did you know that? Well, it is. But it is literally and figuratively thirsty. It can't get satisfied. 
but we have drank waters that we will not be thirsty ever again. That's what he tells us. That's the, that's the master. That's the hope. That's what we, we don't have some embarrassing thing. Oh, we're Christians, we can't do anything. This is what we are about. God has shown us some things, people. Again, then we got this last part of that verse, according to the will of our God and Father. We have a father? What? I didn't have a dad. Did you know that? My dad left when I was four years old. So I had this whole father thing was a difficult concept. Probably still is a little bit. My wife had a dad, amazing guy. He was there all the time, said the right things. You know, <laughs> you want that. I didn't have that. I have one now. I have a father? Are you kidding me? He's a father. Don't let that metaphor fall on you. You go to your dad if you have a good dad. If you don't, like, if you're like me, I don't know what to tell you. But I'm telling you this. I go to my father. I've learned what one is. And I talk to him like a son. Sometimes a thought will pop into my head. You ever have that? It's just not right. I'll say, God, did you just see that, dad? Did you see that, dad? That's an affront to you. He's like, yes, yeah, son, I saw it. We're going to deal with that. And we deal with it. The resistance to this present age begins with understanding that God has an opinion. He has a will about all the things in your life. He has an opinion about it. I want to know what my dad thinks I should do about this. We have the great example, Jesus, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. When it really came to it, the crucible, the thing he didn't want to do, the thing that the Father wanted him to do. And he had to surrender, and we're all going to have to get to that place over and over again. In fact, he says, take up your cross, what, every other day, every sixth day, every single day. We're going to be confronted with choices, and let's not be overwhelmed by that. He's wanting us to vanquish the foe. He's letting us battle the enemy. He could just say a word and the whole thing's cleaned up. For his glorious will, that's not the way he chose. He wants you, he wants me to do battle. And that's what we're doing. His will, do you think anyone can oppose God's will? Isaiah writes, remember this. And stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Your life and my life and this whole world. And from ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. That's who we serve, people. This is the will of God. Thank you for listening to this latest sermon. For more Prof Church, check out our YouTube at Prof Church Lancaster. Follow us on Facebook at Prof Church Life, on Instagram at Prof Church, or visit our website, profchurch.net. Thank you for listening and be sure to make it a great day.